Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Good morning, everybody. Merry Christmas. God, I'm so glad you're here. Thanks for coming. Welcome. If this is your first time, oh, you are in for a treat. <laughs> you know, it's, it's Christmas Eve, technically, all day today. So, guys, it's um, time to start thinking about your Christmas shopping. <laughs> you know, when I asked my wife what she wanted for Christmas this year, and she said, nothing would make me happier than a diamond necklace. So, I got her Nothing. I bet she's going to be surprised. (laughs) Well, this morning we are going to pick up where we left off last week in Matthew chapter 27, which is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're new today, you're probably thinking right now, what kind of church did we stumble into anyway? I knew it was a cult. Christmas had set up a nativity scene on the stage. And when he stepped back to admire his efforts, he realized that the large cross that always hung on the back wall of their stage was overwhelming the modest nativity scene. At first, he was very frustrated. We can't have this instrument of death overshadowing Christ's birth But it was at that moment that he realized just how accurate the scene was. And he was struck with the reality of the meaning of Christmas. Jesus is the season, the reason for the season. That has become a little bit of an anthem for those of us who are trying to remind people this time of year that Christmas is about Jesus. But my question is, what about Jesus? Just that he was born? You know, this is called the season of Advent. Advent is a word in Latin that means his coming. You know that Jesus existed before before Christmas. And actually, he existed from the very beginning. Let me read to you. Paul writes this in Colossians chapter 1. He says, For by him, speaking of Jesus, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. Therefore, Advent is correct. It's a time to remember his coming, but not just that he came, but why he came. In in Luke's gospel, it records that an angel appeared to the shepherds who were out in the fields tending their flocks, and that angel announced to them, for there is born, the word born means brought forth, To you this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You see, the angels told them that a Savior had arrived. That's interesting, you know, because we're not saved because Jesus was born in a manger. We're saved because he died on a cross in my place 
for my sin. And we didn't earn it, and we didn't deserve it. It was a gift. In fact, it was the best gift exchange ever. My life for his. Martin Luther said it like this. It's, is not this a beautiful, glorious exchange by which Christ, who is holy, innocent, and holy, not only takes upon himself another sin that is my sin and my guilt, but also clothes <coughs> and adorns me with his own innocence and purity. And then besides dies the shameful death of the cross for my sake that I may live with him eternally. And so it seems absolutely appropriate to me for the cross to overwhelm the manger, to be studying his death on this Sunday, the Sunday that most people are probably focused just on his birth. And so we turn to Matthew chapter 27. If you don't have your Bibles with you today, Cesar and Rad have Bibles, and they will put one in your hands. And if you don't own a Bible, I would encourage you to accept this Bible as God's gift. <laughs> Before we get started, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do just thank you so much for the gift of your son that we are celebrating at this time of year. But Lord, I pray that we would never forget that it was at the cross that the promise of the birth was fulfilled. Lord, I pray that you would open up our eyes this morning, that you would speak to us through this time, that you would challenge us and encourage us, lift us up, Lord, convict us where necessary, Lord, and drive us to confession this morning. We love you and it's in your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Last week we read that the chief priests and the elders needed to bring Jesus before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, in order that they um, could have him found guilty of sedition against the government so that he would be executed, and not just executed, but crucified. Pilate didn't want anything to do with it, and he tried to find a way to release Jesus. He brought out another prisoner who was also going to be crucified, Barabbas, thinking that there was no way that these Jews would, would exchange Jesus for Barabbas, this notorious criminal. But they chose Barabbas. He asks them, which do you want? In fact, we looked at last week that in the Greek it says that Barabbas' name was Jesus Barabbas. So he says to them, which Jesus do you want? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus the Christ? Which Jesus do you want? The one who will serve your purpose or the one whose purpose you will serve? It's an important question that we all must answer. Which Jesus do you want? Do you choose the one in the world's image, the one whom you conform into whatever you need him to be? Or do you choose heaven's Jesus, the one whose image we are to become more and more like? The Jesus who will serve your purpose or the Jesus whose purpose you will serve? They chose Barabbas. Then Pilate asked them another important question, what then shall I do with Jesus? 
Another question that the entire world must answer. What shall you do with Jesus? Their answer was, get rid of him. But not just get rid of him. Let's mock him and make fun of him and humiliate him. And let's make sure that everyone knows that we do not regard him in any way. I think, sadly, that is still the answer of so many today. Not just get rid of him, but let's mock him. Let's let everyone know that we do not regard him in any way. In fact, let's use his name as a cuss word. Whenever I hear it, it's like a nail to my heart. When someone uses my Lord and Savior's name as an expletive. Pilate, seeing that a tumult was starting, becomes afraid that it might actually turn into a riot, and so he takes out a basin of water and he washes his hands before them, uh, symbolically saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. It's ironic to me that he declares his own innocence of the innocent man that he is unable to declare innocent. He had the power to, but he bowed down to the will of the crowd. Declaring his own innocence, he's unable to declare the innocence of Jesus, even though he knew he was innocent. In response, the chief priests and the elders and all the people cry out, his blood be on us and our children. What a gift to leave your children. They make this declaration when Pilate says, I'm innocent of the blood. They say, let his blood be on us. In Acts, there's a story about Peter and, and, and John, and they're now filled with the Holy Spirit, and they're in Jerusalem, and they're going around, and they're preaching, and they're healing people, and the chief priests and the elders come to them, and they arrest them, and they put them in prison. And uh, they say, don't you dare preach in the name of that Jesus anymore. And they're like, oh, we can't help it. And so they're, they're thrown into prison. Well, in the middle of the night, there's an earthquake. It shakes open. Uh, actually, no, this is a different story. In, uh, an angel comes to them and releases them, opens the door, lets them out, takes off the chains, and they walk out, and then the angel closes up all the doors. And in the morning, the guards come into the prison. And they're like, oh, uh, wait a minute. Weren't there some guys in here? And Peter is out in the, the temple and he's preaching in the name of Jesus. And so the chief priests and the elders, they come to him and they say this, did we not strictly command you not to teach in the name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. Uh, yeah, that's what you said. Isn't that what you said? Let his blood be on us and our children. And then they turn around not very much later and say, what are you trying to blame? Put his blood on us. And Peter's like, uh, yes, you said that. Well, we ended last week with Jesus turned over to the Roman guard who first scourged him, then mocked him and spit on him and struck him with and all of which he could have stopped at any moment before our sake, he endured it all. And it says when they had finished that, they led him away to be crucified. Now at, at this 
time, what they would do most likely is they would take the cross beam of the cross and they would lay it on the shoulders of the one to be condemned and very likely tie his arms to it so that he was bearing the weight of the cross beam on his shoulders. Mind you, after being brutally scourged with his back ripped open, a rough wooden cross strapped to his back, forced to carry it. He's exhausted. Many people during the scourging process died from loss of blood or heart attack even. But Jesus, I believe by the power of the Holy Spirit, is able to endure this and begins to carry. Did you know also that it was a common practice for them to tie a rope around the leg of the condemned man carrying his cross so that as he was walking, they could pull his feet out from him so that he would fall down in the process of walking up the hill to his place of crucifixion? It says, now they came out. Jesus now has his cross tied to his shoulders, bloodied and very broken. And it says, they came out and they found a man of Cyrene, Simon, by the name, him they compelled to bear his cross. This is an interesting man, Simon of Cyrene. Um, He's there. Cyrene is a, a region in North Africa, 800 miles away. It's most likely that Simon has traveled this 800-mile journey so that he can celebrate the Feast of Passover. Well, as he's coming into the city, a group is coming out with some condemned men. One of, a Roman soldier comes up to him and says, you, help him carry that cross. Now, in that day, if a Roman soldier compelled you, you had to do it. There was no option. And so Simon, I imagine, bending down to help Jesus, getting the cross up under his shoulder as well, arm around Jesus, lifting him up and helping him bear this cross. I'm sure that in that moment, Simon, who has come 800 miles just to celebrate the Feast of Passover, is thinking without knowing who Jesus is, I cannot believe that I just made this journey, this long journey, and now I'm going to be defiled by this man's blood, unable to take part in the Passover. See, if you touched blood of another person in that time, you'd be defiled, unclean, unable to take the feast of the Passover. He's come this far and he's thinking, now I'm defiled by this man's blood and can't take the Passover. Ironically, and something that I think he must realize later, is that as his being a part of this, he actually takes place of the final Passover because of that man's blood. Jesus is the final Passover sacrifice. And rather than be defiled by the blood of another man, he is actually taking part in that final Passover. It has such an impact, I believe, on Simon that when he ends up going back home, he expresses what he has witnessed to his family. We can see in um, Mark's gospel that when it mentions Simon, it also mentions his two sons, Alexander and Rufus. Later on, Paul, in writing his letter to to the church in Rome, it greets Rufus and his mother. So it seems likely that Simon, impacted by this event and everything that happens after it, goes home and shares with his family all that has taken place um, and that that message of Jesus Christ spreads 
through his family, and we see his son, at least Rufus, mentioned by name is as a leader in the church in Rome. Man, isn't that cool? Do you think in that moment, do you think in that moment Simon thought, this is going to be a great opportunity to share with my family? So I don't think he thought that, but it became something so much greater than what he could even imagine that it spread through his entire family and to who knows how many other people. Simon, helping Jesus bear his cross. In verse 33, it says, And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say the place of the skull, Golgotha, you know it's not the first time that we've actually seen this place, Golgotha. If, if, if you turn over to Genesis chapter 22, <laughs> there's a, an account in there where God asks Abraham to sacrifice his only son, the son whom he loves, on Mount Moriah. Now, if you don't know, Mount Moriah is the same mountain that we're talking about with Jesus and Golgotha. And God says, Abraham, I want you to take your son and I want you to sacrifice him. And Abraham, believing God, does that very thing. And they go, and when they see the place that God had intended for him to sacrifice his son, he tells his servants that are with him, wait here, the boy and I are going to go. And it says that he took the wood from the sacrifice and he laid it on Isaac's shoulders. That's an interesting parallel, don't you think? God asking Abraham to sacrifice his only son on uh, the Mount of Moriah or the place where the crucifixion would later happen. He says, take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, place that wood on his shoulders and take him up to this place where you will sacrifice him. As they're going, Isaac, (coughs) who by the way, wasn't a child at the time, a more likely a young man, looks at his father and he says, Father, I see we've got the fire, we've got the wood. Where's the sacrifice? Not understanding that it was him who was to be sacrificed. And Abraham's response to him is, son, don't worry. God will provide himself a lamb for the sacrifice. Did you know that that's the first time in the Old Testament that the word lamb is used? And it is in reference to a sacrifice. Interestingly enough, in John's gospel, where it records that John the Baptist sees Jesus walking along the shore of the Jordan River while he's baptizing, says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's the first time in the New Testament the word lamb is used, once again in reference to the one who would be sacrificed. Abraham takes his son, his only son, And he puts him on an altar, ready to sacrifice him as God asked him to, at the same place where God's only son, the son whom he loved, would be ultimately sacrificed. Abraham raises up the knife to plunge it into his son, just as he hears God say, Abraham, whoa, whoa, whoa. Sometimes I think that Abraham must have been like, huh, 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 God? But that's not true, you see. 
Because in Hebrews, it says that he believed God would raise up his son in order to fulfill his promise. It says that in Hebrews 11. Do you see how this all, the story in Genesis 22 is this beautiful, perfect shadow of the substance of the death of Jesus Christ, God's one and only son, who he didn't spare, but who he did raise up from the dead in order to fulfill his promise. That's where we are, Golgotha, the place of the skull, the place you can find in, in every movie I've ever seen, it's always at the like peak of the mountain, but Golgotha was most likely on the mountain, but on a part where the main road passed by so that people could see. It was an intimidation execution so that people would see the suffering person as they passed by on the road. And there is a place outside the gates of Jerusalem, outside the city, uh, where they believe this took place. And if you see the pictures, you have to kind of see them over time because the mountain has begun to erode. But years ago, the picture literally did look like a skull in the mountain with two indents where the eyes would be in the nose. And in fact, I believe that's probably where they stuck the signs that indicated the crime of the person on the cross rather than attaching it to the cross. And I've seen pictures of it. It's very convincing when you see, but it does look like a skull. Golgotha, that was the place that they took him. And it says in verse 34 that they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink, but he had tasted it, he did not drink it. Um, at this time, there were um, like guilds of, of women who were taking mercy on those who were being um, crucified. It was almost never a Roman citizen because it was like illegal to crucify a Roman citizen. And so it was almost always Jews or other, other uh, people of other um, nationalities. And so these women would bring them this uh, mixture that was supposed to be a uh, type of anesthesia to help dull the pain right before they were physically nailed to the cross. And Jesus tasted it and he refused it because one of the things it did was it dulled your mind. And Jesus, I believe, was saying, no, I am going to be clear-minded throughout this because there are things that I have to say that need to be heard. And so he did not take it. And then it says that they crucified him. <coughs> you know the Gospels don't go into detail about what crucifixion was. Nor will I today, because Christmas Eve. But they knew what it was. They knew what crucifixion was. They knew that once that, that crossbeam was strapped to their shoulders and they were headed up the mountain, there was no coming back from that. They knew what it involved. They knew that it was a torturous death. They knew that sometimes <coughs> it could go on. The longest one on record lasted 13 days. 13 days. The shortest one before Christ was 36 hours. It was a torturous, horrible death that Matthew nor any of the other gospel writers felt like they needed to go into the details because the details would have been known to the people at that time. But it was a horrible way to die. You literally would suffocate, drown in your own blood as you hung on the cross. And again, I said I wouldn't go into the details, but uh, maybe another time. 
They crucified him, and they divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. At some point, go and turn to Psalm 22 and read through that and see how many things that Jesus says for the cross are actually quotes right out of Psalm 22. David writing it hundreds and hundreds of years before this happened, says, they pierced my hands and my feet. Before crucifixion was even a thing, David wrote that. He writes that they divided my garments and for my clothing they cast lots. David wrote that hundreds and hundreds of years before this even happened. How could anyone make a prophecy like that come true when they were nailed to a cross? It would be impossible. And yet people say that Jesus just fulfilled as many prophecies of the Messiah as he could to show that he was the Messiah. How could he do that? Sitting down, they kept watch over him, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. It says in the other Gospels that Pilate wrote it in Greek and Latin and Hebrew, so that no matter who came by, they would all see what he was <coughs> accused of. When he wrote, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews, the elders came to him and like, don't write that. Write, he says he is the King of the Jews. And Pilate was like, whatever I've written, I've written. I kind of think it was like Pilate's way of saying, that was the sign. That was the accusation. Do you understand? That was the accusation against him. And it actually is the truest thing, isn't it? This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. It was true. But it made the elders of the church so upset. 38, it says, then the two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. You know what? I think we often forget about that until we see some kind of a movie or something and see that there were actually two other guys marching down the same road, very likely scourged, maybe not as brutally as Jesus, also nailed to a cross on either side of him. And yet these two thieves start mocking Jesus along with those who had also crucified both of them. In my mind, it's almost comical to see two other guys nailed up to a cross mocking Jesus as they're dying in the the same horrible way that he was. What's the matter with them? Two men both crucified on either side of Jesus. One hears Jesus. It says that when they crucified Jesus, when they started pounding nails through his flesh, he started yelling out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And the, the grammar in Greek says that it was continual. He didn't just say it one time, but he continued to say it as they nailed his hands, as they nailed his feet, as they lifted him up and dropped him into the cross hole. As they were mocking him and taunting him continuously, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. One of the thieves crucified along with Jesus hears his continual cry for forgiveness for the sake of those who were killing him and still mock and still reject. But one 
hears his cries for forgiveness for those who are killing him, and his heart softens, and he turns to Jesus, and he recognizes something in him and says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is a picture of the world right here. Jesus in the center. This side mocking him, wanting nothing to do with him, even though they are dying. And the other side also dying, but recognizing that there is something different about him. This man has something that I don't have, but that I need. Lord, it's so significant in that moment that he calls him Lord, because it is a recognition. You you are who they say you are. Remember me. And Jesus says, today, I tell you this day, you will be with me in paradise. Just like that. By the way, no baptism, no special prayer, just an expression of belief in who he was. And Jesus says, that's enough. You're forgiven. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroyed the temple and built, and you who destroyed the temple and built it in three days, save yourself if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Let me tell you something. Y'all are lucky that I'm not Jesus. Because in that moment, I would have been like, all right, bring on the angels. You guys are cinders. I don't know that I would have been able to control myself. But see, they mocked him and said, if you are the son of God, come down off of that cross. But you see, Jesus stayed on the cross because he is the son of God. And that there was a plan of redemption that his father told him must be fulfilled that it involved him on the cross. And so because he was the son of God, he stayed on the cross. In fact, Jesus did something so much greater than coming off the cross. He rose from the dead. But they mocked him. Likewise, it says, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and the elders said, he saved himself and others he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him come now down from the cross and we will believe him. Do you think so? Do you think that had Jesus come off the cross, they would have believed him? <laughs> Jesus told a story of Lazarus and the rich man, both the, the Lazarus was a poor man, a rich man, and there was the rich man, and they both died. And they went to the place that you went to when you died before Jesus' death. One went to a place of torment, and the other went to the place of comfort called Abraham's bosom. The man in torment called over, Father Abraham, please send Lazarus to me with his finger dipped in water and cool my tongue so I might be um, uh, given comfort from this torment. Uh, that story is always interesting to me because this man, even in death, is still looking at Lazarus as the one who should serve him. Abraham answers him in that moment, um, no, uh, we can't do that because there's this great chasm here and we can't go over there and you can't come over here. I lost my train of thought. <laughs> That's right. Thank you, Ken. That's right. So then he says, okay, send Lazarus back 
to warn my brothers so they don't come to this same place. And Abraham says, you know what? Even if someone rose from the dead and came back, they still won't believe. If Jesus had come down off that cross, they wouldn't believe. They said they would, but they wouldn't. Do you notice the language they use? If you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, over and over again. Do you know where we've heard that before? You know where Jesus has heard that before? When he was out in the wilderness, when the devil came to him in a weakened state and tried to tempt him and said, if you are the son of God, make this stone into bread and feed yourself. Here we see the chief priests using the same tactics as the devil taunting Jesus, if you are who you say you are. And Jesus said, I am. He didn't say this, but I think he was thinking this. I am who I say I was, but it will be shown to you in a way greater than you can imagine because I'm going to rise up from the grave after I've been killed. Verse 43, it says, he trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him. (coughs) For he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Now, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness in the land. That's from noon until three. All right? So he's been on the cross for about three hours. Now for the next three hours, it says that there was great darkness over all the land. In fact, Josephus writes of that time, it was so dark that you could actually see the stars in the sky. Now, many people have tried to say, oh, well, this, is, this was like a, um, a, an eclipse. A solar eclipse that happened. So how many of you have seen an eclipse before? Have been like, experienced it, right? Is it like so dark you can see the stars? No. Also, do you know how long an eclipse lasts? Seven and a half minutes. Seven and a half minutes. So if this was an eclipse, still a miracle. Because it was three hours long. Can you imagine three hours long from noon to three in 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 an area where the sun is blazing bright at noon, and now it's nighttime dark for three hours? Also, many people claim that this is an eclipse, but here's the problem. It's Passover. That means it is a full moon, not a new moon. Only a new moon is on the same longitudinal line as the sun and can block out a solar eclipse. So a solar eclipse can only happen when there's a new moon. This is full moon time. Can't be an eclipse. Must be something else. What is it? Well, you understand that at this time at the cross, Jesus has taken on all of the sin of the world onto himself. That's all the sin that had been done, all the sin that we've done, all the sin that we haven't done yet but will commit. He took all of it on himself. In Habakkuk 1.13, it says this of God, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. I believe that in this time, this is the father who is unable to look upon wickedness, turning away his face from his son who has bore all of the sin, all of the wickedness of the world at this time. And the world goes dark. 
This isn't just Jerusalem. The historical writings about this say that it covered all of the known Roman world, which was a lot of territory. I believe that this is why we see Jesus suffering unto death in the garden the night before, knowing that he was going to face a time like he had never faced before, not just physical torment, but the separation or the turning away of his father, which had never happened before in his existence, which has been forever. And the world goes dark. And about the ninth hour, about three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. You know, when you watch a movie about the crucifixion, it always shows Jesus very clear voiced, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. You have to understand, Jesus has been on the cross for several hours. He's beaten and near death. What comes out of his mouth might have been loud, but probably very hard to understand. (coughs) Which is why it says that some of those who stood there when they heard that said, he, this man is calling out for Elijah. It's not that they didn't understand the language, but I'm sure they just had problems understanding what he was saying. But what he was saying, folks, was also a quote, the very first verse of Psalm 22 again. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he has been in three hours of darkness because his father turns his face away. Verse 48 says, immediately one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. You know that this was an act of mercy. I know it says sometimes they gave him vinegar to drink, which also, by the way, is prophesied. Um, But it uh, it wasn't out of mocking. At this point, someone grabbed the reed. They would mix vinegar with water because the water wasn't the purest. Um, and the vinegar would help to keep away the bacteria. And so they put it up to his mouth. In, in, uh, in another gospel, it says, he says, I thirst. They run and they get this sponge and they put it in this water and they put it on a reed up to his mouth and he tastes it because he was dehydrated beyond anything you've ever experienced. It actually also says in Psalm 22, my, mouth, my tongue cleaves to the roof of my mouth. Can you imagine this? David writes this. He has no idea what he's writing. They come and they give him just a little bit of water to loosen his tongue from sticking to the roof of his mouth in extreme dehydration. The rest said, let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come and save him. Again, they cannot stop mocking him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. And Matthew doesn't record it, but in the other Gospels, it says that he cried out also with a loud voice the word tetelestai. (coughs) That's a word and it means completed or paid in full. Now, like a a lot of people teach, and I've even taught this, that that's like an accounting term that when you, when you purchase something, they would stamp it on the bottom of your receipt, paid in full, like you've completed the transaction. And to some degree, that's kind of true. But did you know that all the evidence that we're basing that on comes from a handful of Egyptian receipts that were all based on taxes that had been paid? 
It wasn't, it wasn't any, there's no evidence to say that it was based on some marketplace receipt or transaction, which I actually like because our, um, our salvation isn't a transaction. It's a gift. In fact, the word tetelestai is much more, more likely connected to this. At this time in Rome, when a crime was committed, when you were convicted of a crime and put into prison, a description of your crime and a detailed description of the sentencing was written on a paper and nailed to the door of your cell. So while you served time, you were fulfilling or paying your debt. At the end of it, when you had served your time or when you had paid off the debt that you owed, that certificate was taken down. It was stamped with the word tetelestai, completed, paid in full. That certificate was then given to the prisoner and that prisoner was set free. I believe that's a much more accurate description of the word that Jesus is using when he says from the cross, it is finished, paid in full. It then, in, again, not in Matthew's gospel, but in another gospel, he then says his final words, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. You know what's interesting to me is while he's crying out for forgiveness, he says, Father, forgive them, for I know not, they know not what they do. Here he says, Father, at the end, Father, I have completed, I've paid the debt, I've completed the work that you sent me to do. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But when he was bearing all of the sin of the world and the Father turned away, he referred to him as, God, God, why have you forsaken me? Then, in verse 31, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. At the moment of Jesus' death, at the moment that he gives up his spirit, there's a great earthquake. And we talked about this last week. The earthquake then causes the rocks to split and the veil in the temple to be torn from top to bottom. And in case you missed it, we're not talking about a curtain. The veil was enormous, 80 feet tall. As thick as your hand is, wide, or thicker, I heard. Torn from the very top all the way down. God saying, there is now no longer a separation between mankind and me. See, the veil served as the thing that separated the people from God. They relied on the priest to go in and offer atonement for them each and every year, and only the high priest was able to go in, and only after several sacrifices were made on his behalf as well. In fact, um, it was, uh, I would say that it was kind of a scary moment because the, the priest had to go in and offer atonement for the people, but if he still had unconfessed sin in his life, God would strike him down. In fact, he would wear bells on his garment so that they could hear the bells, they said, oh, the bells are still going. He's still alive. Yay. But they would tie a rope around his leg. In case they heard the bells stop, they'd be like, oh, we lost another one. And they would pull him out by his leg because they could not go into that place. At the moment of Christ's death, when he had completed the work that needed to be done, when he had become the final sacrifice, God said, well, we don't need this anymore. 
No more separation between me and my creation. It's now through Jesus. Then Matthew adds this nice little section in 52 and 53. And the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Okay, like I honestly don't know what that is all about. I I can tell you right now, I don't know. I, I think that it might be just a little bit out of order. You know that Matthew is not a chronological record keeper. He kind of puts stuff in where he thinks it'll make an impact in some cases. And I think this is one of those, because it actually says, after his resurrection, meaning Jesus' resurrection. Now, do I think that the graves opened up and those who had died before walked around the city in their bodies? I do believe that because it says that here. Did it happen at the moment of crucifixion or does it sometime after his resurrection? I'm going to go with resurrection because that's what it says also. But short of that, I really don't know what it means. I don't have a great example for you, and there's no application that I can give you for this. Other than that, it's in there. You can ask. When you get to heaven, ask, like, Matthew, what were you thinking? Like, what what was that part about? (coughs) So, when the centurion and those with him were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. So close. They're so close to right, aren't they? Because it wasn't that he was the Son of God. It is that he is the Son of God. Had they said, truly, this is the Son of God, they would have nailed it. But they thought it was him. We missed it. You know that I know from Other books in the Bible in the New Testament that many palace guards end up becoming Christians, mostly at the preaching of Paul because he was unrelenting and just like a a zealot when it came to reaching the lost. And so maybe these guys, when you get to heaven, maybe you'll meet this centurion. Maybe he came to a place where someone said, it wasn't just that he was the son of God. It is that he is the son of God. Maybe it would only take him three days to get there. And so on this Sunday, the day before Christmas, we see that Jesus was born to die and raised up so we could live. That is an amazing gift. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Lord, I don't think it's any surprise that this time of year that we've kind of co-mingled with things that the world does, including giving gifts to one another, that we see here that the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, and his death on the cross for our sake is the greatest gift that we could ever receive. And so we thank you for that. Lord, I pray that we would never forget. Lord, never forget why you came. Yes, Lord, we celebrate your birth this time of year. But Lord, just as we say, Jesus is not still on the cross. Lord, he is not still in the manger either. Lord, he came, he lived, he died, he rose again, he saved us. Thank you. Lord, I pray that uh, you would... Help us to hold on to that when we go out and when we are with our family. Lord, I pray that you would give us, fill us with grace 
for our family members who do not know you like we know you, Lord. Lord God, that we would not try to beat them over the head with our Bibles this Christmas as we're sitting around the table, but that we would love on them and gently share the truth of the Christmas message that Jesus came, he was, uh, he arose, arrived, lived, and died and rose again for us, for our sin. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name, Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen.